Father, as we come again to the text that you have given us, we ask that the Holy Spirit who put this text into our hands, who has preserved the text, will also teach it to our hearts tonight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight you have received the uh, one of the appendices, appendix, first part of Appendix uh, C, and it's not a complete Appendix C, um, so I couldn't get it all done, so that means that we'll be here for three, three times, the rest of Appendix C and Appendix D after tonight. Um, just to review and get us back in gear a little bit, remember that we, we worked through these four events that we studied, the creation, the fall, and the flood, and the covenant. And we have made the case that biblical faith rests on real history. And that if the Bible's witness is wrong in the area of history, then we cannot believe the Bible where we can't check it out. It does no good to say, oh, well, I don't really believe in the miracles that Jesus did, but somehow I believe in his statement that he forgives sins. Well, there's not a detector known that can check on whether sins have been forgiven or not. So, therefore, our faith is trusting his character, which is demonstrable only in the area where we can see it. And that's why it's very, very important to hold to an inerrant scripture. And what, what the, the pressure is always on Christians, particularly today, is on the, the idea that, that truth and our faith all rests on feelings. And here's what happens. We can get our projector functioning here. Um, what happens is, is the, the world system has this idea that there's truth over here, hard truth, real truth, and this is in the area of science and history. And then over here there's opinion. And religious things are thrown over in this compartment. And that's what happens to the gospel. And the only way you can fight this is to hold to the fact that the Bible speaks in both areas. And we've gone back and forth and shown how the doctrine of God supports this and doctrine of man and so on. That's, that's where we are coming to in these appendices. So we've gone through teaching the doctrine, we've gone through the text, we've shown the narrative of what happens. The Bible has a straightforward narrative in all of these events. They're truly global. We've gone through them and seen that the first four great events of the Bible these four events have to do with establishing the world as we know it. This is the way the universe exists as we know it. Now, when we come to Appendix B, well, Appendix A, I dealt with how we, why we interpret literal Genesis. And I think we spent a lot of time last, last week showing that if you let go of a Genesis uh, literalness, then certain things follow, including the collapse of the New Testament. What we want to do tonight is we want to look specifically at biology, historical biology. 
and the issue of evolution and creation. Now, obviously, in 45, 50 minutes, we can't deal with, with a myriad of details. So what I've chosen to do is give you the structural argument that's going on. And I, if you are interested in following up the details, I'd recommend the Institute for Creation Research, um, Creation Research Society. There are, there's lots and lots of material that are out there, and more is coming in as young men particularly pursue some exciting stuff. And a lot of progress being made here. But for us in this class, I think it's important we see the logic of the argument, how these issues arise. So, earlier on, remember back when we talked about creation, we said that if we look at creation, we see that the you have God, the creator, we have the universe here, and because God is omniscient, and human, the human mind has knowledge, this corresponds to his mind. So there's a linkage going on here. And our knowledge is finite and limited, and his is infinite. Because his knowledge is infinite, that's the base for our knowledge claims. Tonight, this, I hope, will become even increasingly clearer as we look at this issue of evolution. So I want to start by reviewing two overheads that we looked at a lot, of, a lot earlier. And, of course, one of them you've seen ad nauseum is this one. And I'm going to review it again. Because every time we can't get enough of this chart, this is a fundamental point. Because it holds for every human being. Whether you are Christian or whether you are non-Christian doesn't make a particle of difference. This holds for every person. And we have mentioned how this chart pictures human experience, the limitations of it. It's in a box. Human experience is bounded. It's finite. When we say man is finite, we mean it's bounded. So it doesn't make any difference how much data you have. You're always, all your data is confined to this box. Now, the center box of this is what we call a direct observation. This is time and this is space. And you can go back in time to certain, to your own lifetime, and that's it. Nobody's ever observed anything more than 100 years or 70 years or however long it is. You have no direct experience of that. So, in this box where we have the vertical line, that shows the data and the experience that you personally can see and check. You can extend it in space and in time. This is going back down to smaller and smaller units of time. Remember we said high-speed camera can see things your eye can't see. And we said microscope could go down in space, see smaller and smaller things that your eye can't see. Telescopes can see larger and larger things that your eye can't see. So we can extend our senses with tools and instruments. 
But you'll notice by looking at this box, there's one side of that box that is not being extended by any instrument, and that's history. That's going out in time this way. And the problem is that we can't project our instruments out in time to take measurements. So no matter what the tool is, be it a microscope, telescope, or anything, it's trapped in time, just like we're trapped in time. So we can push the boundary a little bit, and that's those horizontal lines, by using historical records of other human beings that lived before us, that left records. So we can push the boundary out to thousands of years. And that's as far as we can go. There are no other records, period, beyond that. No other direct observations available. Everything beyond a few thousand years has got to be gained by making assumptions and conjectures. And the thing we want to look at in these appendices, all three of them, that were B, C, and D, is we're going to look at the method of trying to create natural histories, that is, histories that purport to write about what happened to the universe prior to man. They purport to say that we can project our knowledge out this way. So that's the center issue. But we want to begin by tonight so that everyone's clear that there is no direct method of writing natural history other than by direct observation. All other methods, be it biological, astronomical, or geological, are methods that have to use certain philosophies to push the boundary to the right on that box. We also said earlier, and we showed another slide, that we are afflicted with a further limitation. You can find the slide here. And we use this one. Maybe some of you remember back when we were looking at creation, we said that is a, represents a limitation on man's logic. And that particular picture is one of the theorems in Euclidean geometry, the parallel line postulate. And in that, remember that Euclid said, and everybody thought for many, many centuries he was absolutely right, because he was right about the circle, he was right about how you define points, how you make lines, and if you had plain geometry, you know, you work theorems up according to that. And one of those axioms that he had was that if you have a line and a point not on the line, but it's in the general plane of the line, you can put one and only one line through that point parallel to this. And we all learned that basic uh, axiom of Euclid. It was thought for many, many centuries that what was really happening here was that our minds were really, was really perceiving the way the universe is until people began to look at that and look and notice something about that point. And in the 19th century, mathematicians began to explore this a little bit. And they said, you know, there's something that bothers us about that axiom. Not true of the others, but that axiom has a problem with it. Well, what's the problem? The problem is that nobody can check on it by going to the right or the left infinitely. Nobody has ever really seen that the parallel line exists to infinity. So therefore, there were other mathematicians who came along and said, I can 
put multiple lines through the point that are parallel. Now, you may think this is bizarre, but not so. If you think, for example, of a sphere, and you're a creature, a two-dimensional creature on a three-dimensional sphere, you can have parallel lines uh, that don't really fit Euclid. So, we can get into those areas, but the, so those other mathematicians have said you can't draw any line through that point. And these are the guys that develop what is called non-Euclidean geometry. Now, this sounds very theoretical and obtuse, except, let me just make a summary point. We don't have to go into the details, but what came out of that 19th century mathematical discussion was, gee, all these years we thought that we were building logical, tight, deductive logic out of intuitively obvious concepts that are related to the universe. In other words, our minds logically flowed with the way the universe was structured. But when the mathematicians began to say that they could build non-Euclidean geometries perfectly logical, had their own set of axioms, could solve theorems inside those systems, were internally consistent, but they conflicted with this. Now we've got multiple geometries. Now we're satisfying logic, but now we're not sure which logic it is that fits the universe. Uh-oh. And what the sobering result of this, not well advertised, but was, it was a titanic discovery that was made. Just at the time evolution was starting, mathematicians made this startling discovery that we're not really sure anymore that our mathematical structures are in correspondence to the universe. Maybe they're imaginative structures that don't fit the real universe. And if our mathematical structures don't fit the real universe, now what are we going to do scientifically when that's our tool? That's the tool of science. And if we're not sure it fits, we've got some big methodological problems here. So we just want to preface what we're saying with those two points. Two points again. We're not sure, now that we've gone into this, that our logic and the categories fit reality, and we're not in possession of an infinite array of data. Faced with these two limitations, though, we boldly march on and proclaim before all but one that we can write natural history. So if you'll turn in the notes to page 108, which is our first one, we come to the first section, Structural Differences Between Creation and Evolution. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I want to show you a very practical result that comes out of this. Remember we said all during the time we've, we've looked at Genesis that one way to understand the New Testament is to look, uh, Old Testament is to look at how the New Testament uses it. What practical examples? You know, everybody says it's not practical. Well, Paul seems to think it's quite practical. He wrote a big, long letter to a church. It was practical. It was a practical church in a practical city called Corinth, and they had practical problems. Now, when Paul deals with that church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he makes a number of statements. And one of the things that he makes is the fact that in verse 40... Or if you go back to verse 39, he's discussing the issue of resurrection. And as he discusses this, notice that he raises a question about categories. You'll see the word talk about glory, 
And what I want to show you in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Bible precedes on the assumption that the Genesis kinds are inviolable. That is, God created this group of beings, they reproduce after their kind. They don't transmute into something else. This subset of creatures are biologically connected. So the biblical view of reality is that you have structures, categories, you have dogs, you have cats, you have different birds, you have all these beings that are categories and distinct from each other. Paul uses this whole idea to distinguish natural from resurrection bodies. Notice what he says, verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish, and so forth. There are heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. You see, it's all distinguishing into categories. And, of course, this is nothing but an extension of the great, grand distinction between the Creator and the creature. The Bible is full of categories. Well, another overhead that we've shown again and again, until probably again, you're tired of seeing it, but we'll show it again because this review doesn't hurt. Remember this one? There are only two worldviews when you boil them down. One believes that there's creator-creature distinction. The other denies it and winds up with some sort of continuity of being. Now tonight, when we deal with evolution, we're going to see something new about this. This continuity of being idea. We're going to watch what happens. Now, this may have sounded abstract, but if you know about the evolutionary issue and you've been trained in it, uh, we want to show you something about evolution. And that the creator-creature distinction here versus the continuity of being here. Those are the two basic ideas. So, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about categories. The creation is full of them. And notice that they are different and they change. they're not unchanging. All right, on page 109 of your notes, if you'll look at the first full paragraph there, I discussed this, if you'll follow with me on those notes, and we'll look at some of the Bible verses and how the Bible carries this view of reality out. In the biological realm, creationism asserts the inviolable nature of the created kinds. These groupings of life forms are zealously guarded throughout the Bible. As mighty as the creation's procreative power is, it cannot override these barriers. Not only, and, and I want to go into the practical now. Now, it's always been true of paganism that it in some way, somewhere, holds to a continuity of being. Again, let me just, before we go any further, let me show you what continuity of being means is that these categories are all somehow cross-related. There are fuzzy boundaries between them, not airtight, watertight boundaries. Where this behavior, the behavioral application of what happens here is that paganism always features homosexuality. It always has. 
And it's because, as I point out here, if you follow, not only homosexual transgression of the gender difference was opposed, but bestiality was specifically penalized. Sexual aberrations such as these are more than simple lust patterns. They are expressions of paganism's hostility to the God of created categories. So intense in defying God and his structures that we smash them. Now let's see how the Mosaic law protected categories. So let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. There are these little fine details in the Mosaic Law, overlooked by most people, but we're going to look at just some of them tonight to show you how focused, how insistent the Scripture is that the creation is ordered according to certain categories. On Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, notice a behavioral point here. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, obviously, this is a practical example. What is the practical example? What is the deal with gender differences in clothing? It's because the gender difference is honored. It's not played down. It's played up. It's honored. Why? Because God's categories are an expression of his design. Let's look at further in this uh, in book. Verse 6, 7. Uh, notice the idea of the difference between a mother animal and her young. If you happen to come across a bird's nest along the way in the tree or on the ground, the young ones are eggs, and the mother sits with the young one of the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Severe penalties. This is not, it's not, just, this is not just something for the uh, humane society. Uh, this is due regard for protection of these creatures. And the fact that you don't just take mother and young, there's a difference between these. Categories are important. Verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of your vineyard become defiled. Obviously discussing the problem of, of mixing genetic structures. And you can debate whether that's true now outside of Israel. I'm not going to debate that. All I'm trying to show you is that inside the Mosaic Law, there is a passion to preserve categories. Whether it's the animals, whether it's the seed, verse 7, uh, verse um, 9. The, the plant, verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Again, it's honoring the different structures. You don't act like everything is interchangeable. There's a respect for the structures that God has made. Now, why? You say, all this, you know, what, what clothing? Uh, how do you plow with animals? I mean, what, what's all this? Well, let's turn to the book of Leviticus and let's see some more things that were prohibited. Again, just to show you the, the biblical attitude toward honoring 
these embedded categories. Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus 18. You can readily see from these practical examples of the biblical passion to honor God's categories how screwed up we are today. It's chaos out there. And the chaos is not just practical social stuff. It's related to a philosophic worldview in which there's a continuity of being and it doesn't really matter what one is. It's just a gradation of, of character. We're all part animals. All right, let's look at Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is abomination. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourself by any of these things, for by all these, but for by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. In other words, pagan culture inevitably has these features. My point I'm trying to make to you is it is not a simple case of morals that's working here. It's deeper level than that. This isn't just a problem of morals. This is a problem of an entire worldview at work. Again, the continuity of being is the pagan modus operandi. And it carries over in practical illustrations like I'm showing you. But I want to carry this further tonight. I want to show you that this is not just a case of practical things. It's the case in which our very salvation depends. So, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 a moment and watch how Paul builds the gospel on this. Think about it. It should be intuitively obvious. We shouldn't even have to really go to 1 Corinthians 15 if you think about it. But what are we saying when, for example, we say we are in Adam or we are in Christ? Think in terms of the biological distinctions. Remember we said... Dogs can't become cats, and cats can't become dogs. That's the structure of creationism. But isn't it also true in the Gospel that Adam and his progeny cannot become part of Christ and his progeny, can they? Is there any transmutation or evolution across that boundary? Think about that one for a minute. Isn't it true that the whole heart of the gospel is there has to be a recreation. We call it a regeneration. Isn't it true that before we can get the resurrection bodies of Jesus, we don't transmute this thing into a resurrection body. We recreate it. It's uh, We don't. God does. It's called the doctrine of the resurrection. Regeneration and resurrection are the only ways to cross these boundaries. No evolution, no transmutation possible. So what I'm saying is that this characteristic of biblical thinking carries from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. Always there are inviolable categories that God honors. And when he goes to save people, he honors his own categories. There is no evolution spiritually. Never, ever. That is why you must be born again. 
That is why the gospel message is not good works and be a good little girl or good little boy and eventually, if your good works outweigh your bad works, now suddenly you're a Christian. Now, that can no more happen than your dog can mutate into a cat. We cannot become Christians by the evolution of good works. Nor, in the same way, can any category in physical creation transmute through procreation into something it wasn't before. Well, remember when we started in Genesis, I had you read Enuma Elish. Do you remember one of the stories of Enuma Elish? If you go back in time, instead of the creator-creature distinction, what did we see in the first verses of that Enuma Elish epic? We saw that out of this watery muck, there were the gods. And out came a god and a goddess. And the god and the goddess mated, and out from them came little gods. And various other creations. In other words, what is the force that is operating to bring everything into existence here? Is it not procreation? A form of procreation and transmutation. Now, what is the force that carries evolution? What is evolution? It is transmutation and reproduction, is it not? What is the theory behind evolution? The reason why there is supposed to be evolution is that because of certain mutated characteristics, certain creatures, certain subsets are given reproductive advantages and they out-procreate their competitors. And this is the step on the evolution. But notice the strange thing that lo and behold, in spite of all the language of science, in spite of all the sophisticated vocabulary, the studies under the microscope and all else, isn't it striking that at the heart of the idea is the same procreation and transmutation we noticed in Enuma Elish? Why is that? Because it's part of this continuity of being. Paganism in the ancient world, paganism in the modern world. It's all the same thing. It just dresses up in different clothes. And we, as Christians, have to realize we are part of a centuries-old conflict. It is not new to Charles Darwin. It goes back, far back, into the first pagans that ever rebelled against God. It goes back to the very fall of man, these ideas. So, the structure then, the face-off between creation and evolution is this issue. We're not going to talk about dating. We'll deal with that in another appendix. We're not talking about the universe outside of the earth. We're not talking about rocks and strata tonight. We're only talking about these two ideas. Either the world was fixed with categories or it is part of one vast continuum that can transmute itself just like these gods did in the ancient world. So turn in the notes to page 109 down the bottom. The second topic I want to talk about. We've looked at this difference in structure. Structurally, creation and beliefs and categories. Evolution ultimately does not. Because you can transmute. The categories are secondary. They're just way stations on the evolutionary trail. So, we want to now, on page 109, deal with the difference between evolution as fact 
so-called, and evolution as theory. I warn you about this because if you get into serious discussions, you may get tripped up here. Because somebody someday is going to tell you that, well, I know you Christians can attack the theories of evolution and you can poke holes in Darwin, but we may not have a complete theory of how evolution happened, but we know that it happened. We don't know how, but we know that. So, what is done here is a distinguishment is made between the theory of how it happened versus the fact that it has happened. And of course, they say, you, you can't deny that factually it's happened. Well, yes, that's precisely what we're denying. That's exactly what we're denying. So now we want to sharpen our focus tonight for just a few minutes on what, what's this thing about the fact of evolution. Forget Darwin now. Forget um, the new guys that are floating around uh, teaching evolution. Forget all the theories of how it happened. Mutations, natural selection, etc., etc. Don't worry about that. Just think now, if you were a non-Christian, why would you believe in the fact of evolution? All right, if in the bottom of page 109, I outline the argument. Here's why you would believe in the fact of evolution. This is, is this continuum really such an undebatable fact? It can be defended only by using some sort of argument like this. Common features are observed in all life forms. Is that right? Everybody agree with that? There are certain common features, aren't there? Common features to all life forms. I mean, everything made of cells. And life forms that are closer, mammals, all have four legs, same, same idea. There are similarities, and we're not denying that. That's observer, observation. Two, other features are common to subsets of life forms, like skeletal patterns. Is that factual? Sure it is. Go out and check it. No problem. Three, such common features show a common code or genetic information shared universally or in those subgroups. Is that true? Yes. Animals have four legs because it's coded. They're built that way. It's in the DNA structure. It's in the message. Build me a four-legged guy. It's all there. In chemical code. So that's factual. Four, the various subgroups. Now watch this one. Watch it carefully. This is like a magician's act. Something's going to happen here in the argument. The various subgroups of life forms can be classified on a scale of ascending complexity. True or false? Well, obviously it's true. Can't we distinguish primitive forms from so-called advanced forms? Yes. That's true. And what do we call that process? of sorting it out. What's a word for that? When we say we look at all these animals and we can categorize them and so forth. What is, what, what kind of a process is that? It's a process of classification, precisely. So the big issue here, in fact, now we're creeping up to define what this thing means. What this really is, isn't a fact that evolution has happened. What it is, is that we can classify 
So there is possible to make classification. That's factual. Yes, we can make classification in an ascending scale of complexity. Now, five. Codes and genetic information can be carried from one life form to another by procreation with differences accountable by transmutation. Ancient paganism and modern paganism. Modern paganism is far more refined than the old paganism. The new paganism is an improved version of the old paganism, yes. But it still has the idea that the similarity, if I see something here, some living form called A, and I see another living form over here, B, and B carries certain traits that A does, then the, uh, the weight, the preponderance of the, of the idea is that we've had some sort of exchange like this, or A and B have come from a common ancestor. So now what has happened at step five in the argument is a subtle shift has happened, and I wonder how many people spotted it. At level four in the argument, we were saying that we can observe that these creatures can be classified. But now at level five, something begins to happen in the argument. At step five, it is asserted that similarities can arise only by procreation and transmutation. Now think about it for a moment. Your car, when it works, has four wheels. Have you ever seen a car with less than four? Occasionally, perhaps. But don't most cars have four wheels? Now, has your car evolved from another one? Is it that similarity always has to be through a process called reproduction and transmutation. Why do cars have, all cars have four wheels? I'll give you a better illustration than that one. In the Air Force today, we're always concerned about building superior fighter aircraft to outmaneuver the enemy. Now, I, if you're a bug on aviation and you watch the pictures, you see the F-15, which was relatively an old aircraft, being, trying to be um, replaced. If you look at the F-15 and the Russian MiG-29 and the high-speed fighter aircraft of the world, do you ever notice something? They look remarkably the same. And as the pressure on aviation designers, aeronautical engineers, becomes greater and greater to build faster and faster aircraft and high, highly maneuverable aircraft, the designs are all looking the same way. Now, is this because one aircraft is evolving into another one? Or is there another case of aircraft being designed because that's the way the universe is built? So, here's the point of step five. And I, we want to master this because this is the heart of the whole thing. That's why I'm spending so much time on tonight. Is that when you see A and B that are similar, you can attribute it to common descent which we mean common descent, procreation, transmutation, or you can attribute it to common design. The same guy that designed A designed B. 
Now think about it just for a moment and go back to what was the term we devised back in chapter 3 of our notes when we dealt with the creation of man. What did we say man was? We used that funny term. When we talked about man being the image of God, we said that man was a theomorphism. Not that God is an anthropomorphism. It's the other way around. We are theomorphs. We are made in God's image. Now, the reason life forms have similarity is because we happen to be the highest life form made, and we know we are, because when God incarnates himself, he doesn't come in a dog. He doesn't come in a hawk. He doesn't come in a falcon like the Egyptians thought. He doesn't come in a cow like Hinduism thinks. He comes in the Son of Man. Because man was made in God's image. And he is the highest. The other animals look like us because they're gradations of being of less life than we are. So, God made them all. Life has a certain shape to it. That's why the animals are shaped that way. So, this is absolutely critical, step five, and we, we want to make this distinguishment. There are two, not one, explanations for this thing. This is central. If you get nothing from tonight, nothing from tonight, please get this point. This is the heart of the evolutionary creation debate. Whether similarity and classification is to be explained by continuity and procreation and transmutation, or whether it is to be explained by common design. Okay. Now let's go to the concluding section on page 110. We're going to look at four areas. Again, I urge you to read, get good quality creationist material to fortify details in this area. All I'm going to do now is I want to go through four categories of evidences. You can fill in this with dozens of things from the creationist materials. All I'm doing is setting you up with basic categories for your own, to get you started. First category, where you can show evidences of the biblical worldview. Design and information theory. The universe isn't chaotic, and life certainly isn't chaotic. You've all seen the helix-type molecules and so on of DNA, and today, of all ages of the church, we live in a time of history when we know more of the design than anyone has ever seen in all the history of the church together. Precisely in the very day when Genesis is being denied, we live in with more powerful evidences than any of the church fathers ever even dreamed of having. One of the fascinating things in that quote by A.E. Wilder Smith in the bottom of page 110 that goes over, if you'll follow me with that paragraph, A.E. E. Wilder Smith has noted that such design cannot come from matter spontaneously. While random processes can produce limited structures by chance, they cannot produce genuine information. Let me show you the, the example. Remember, we did this example once before. Let's pretend you have a set of grids of paper, all cut the same size. Somebody cut three by five cards, and on each card you've got a dot or a dash. And I hand you the box, and I tell you to shake up the box. 
and then pour it out on the floor. So you have these dots and dashes randomly scattered all over the floor. And your eye looks down and you see these dots and dashes scattered all over the floor until at one place in the floor you see three dashes, three dots, and three dashes. Now, interesting pattern you'd observe, a pattern. That's not what A.E. Wilder Smith is saying. The evolutionists are arguing that all we creationists are saying is that chance can produce patterns, can't produce patterns, and they say, well, yes, it can. There's an example. It has produced, chance has produced a pattern. But that's not A.E. Wallace Smith's argument. A.E. Wallace Smith's argument is that particular pattern has linguistic meaning. It has meaning if you share, if that pattern has been given meaning by two minds. Person A has sent a message on the radio to person B. They both share a language. And in language, SOS, I was just told the other day, originally comes from Save Our Souls. The International Recognition of Distress. Now, that would have to be known by the sender and the receiver. Both share a linguistic convention. What A.E. Wallace Smith is saying is you have to look at not just the pattern, but you have to look upon the fact that language has given that pattern meaning. And the analogy to biology is that you have genetic codes that are coded into the chemistry for reproduction. Those codes are physical patterns. But the codes result in a conveying of information from parent to child of a blueprint of how to build a body. There has been a meaning that has been transferred, not just the physical pattern. Just as, for example, if I hand you, you want to build a house, and I hand you a blueprint. Okay, on the blueprint, because we don't use blueprints now, we have CAD. So, computer-aided design gives me this wonderful-looking drawing. Now, it's just lines and ink on paper. Interesting patterns. If I'm not an architect, that doesn't communicate to me, does it? But if you intended to create a message across the paper and the ink, you had a message in your mind, and I, have, I received the message because we share a knowledge of blueprints. You see, the meaning is different than the pattern. And that's what Smith is arguing for here, is that it's not a case. And if you look at the second paragraph on page 110, 111, biological genetic structure functions similarly to a printed page. Now watch, watch the care here. There is a plan or a design communicated from one cell to another that is distinct from the DNA molecular structure. In other words, the information, like SOS, is a, is a content. It says, come get me. I'm in trouble. That is to be distinguished from three dashes, three dots, and three dashes. That's a pattern. But the pattern is conveying a concept, conceptual information. And that's what Smith's point. By the way, Dr. Smith has three PhDs, and one of them is pharmacology. The law, he deals with drugs and chemicals. He says... Such a plan no more arose from the DNA 
than a book story rose from paper and ink. Wilder Smith notes that this distinction between an intelligent message or design and its physical carrier is precisely what evolutionary scientists today use in trying to discern signs of extraterrestrial life, ETI. Now, here's a very good observation. Have any of you noticed, in any of the science programs and television, uh, have you seen them where they're building, or have built many years ago, but they're improving them, radio telescopes? And they have these vast antennas pointed deep into outer, pointed at outer space to certain places. And what they're doing is they're listening. Now, if you were to listen to what those antennas are listening to, you'd hear, you'd hear a lot of static. And the computers are busy assimilating that static signal, looking for something. Now, here's the problem. When, in all the static, can they tell whether there's a message coming from outer space? What instructions do you give the computer to turn on the light and say, hey, found something? How do you program a computer to do that? And Wallace Smith says, this is interesting. These are the very same people that are saying there's no design that, or whatever design in nature doesn't indicate a message or content. These are the very same people spending millions of dollars to build radio telescopes looking for a pattern in the radio amplitude and frequencies and saying that when they're there, that means there's a message. Now, isn't this ironic? The very same people in one area looking at a microscope are arguing that the helix and the design, the DNA, conveying all this conceptual information on how to build a human being, think of it, a sperm and an ovum, has a blueprint in it equal to over 100,000 pages of instructions on how to build a human being. And it's all conveyed in this little sperm and ovum. Complete details. How, what color your eyes are. Hair follicles. Skin structure. Bone structure. All your organs. How to build a central nervous system. How to carry traits from you to your children. All that carried in one little tiny sperm zone. A message. And the sperm the, 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 the shape of the information chemically in those molecules is to be distinguished from the message they're carrying. Just as if you were to diagram the radio frequency coming in off a radio telescope, it's going like this, changing amplitude, changing frequency. It's a mess. But what they're looking for is something that would be regular, that they can separate out of all that junk. And when they've done that, aha, we've got a message, maybe. And the whole theory of extraterrestrial intelligence depends on signal processing using a theory of information that is being denied in the area of biology. So this is the background for the quote now on the middle of page 111. It would be interesting to suggest to practitioners of ETI research the following experiment. Instead of listening to their radio telescopes searching for non-random sequences issuing from the far galaxies as an index of ETI, they might take a look into a suitable mountain electron microscope focused onto suitably prepared genetic code sequences. When the ETI expert has thus convinced himself that the genetic code shows non-random sequencing governed by a language convention determining a synthetic organic chemical message, what must he conclude? Should have a question mark there in that sentence. What must he conclude? That's an amazing observation. So, 
The first area is we are loaded with evidences today of design in nature around us. Absolutely loaded with it. And the fact that design implies a designer and a message is admitted by the opposition when they look for extraterrestrial life forms. Second, on page 111, the second area we want to remember tonight is in evolution historically, Darwin looked at the results of artificial selection, breeding. You have a pet dog. Maybe you like a certain breed of dog. My son likes golden retrievers. He's a veterinarian, and he says golden retrievers have this great personality. They're very friendly to people, and they're easy to get along with. But my son is a veterinarian. also tells me that because they bred the dogs to have this characteristic, they also made a big goof because golden retrievers have certain skeletal deformities in their hips. And after six or seven years, they begin to deteriorate. A weakness has been brought into the golden retriever because on the, other, the same genes that they wanted to, to produce this good trait have carried in a weak trait. So the big thing in animal breeding today is how do you mess up the gene pool again and bring in mongrel genes to erase and suppress these bad areas that we've hybridized to the point of perfection and weakened animals. Well, what we're saying is that Darwin observed how effective artificial selection was in producing patterns. What he then did, and this is another argument you want to be careful of and know the slick nature of it. Darwin argued that nature could breed like the breeder could breed, and he called it natural selection. When you hear the word natural selection in an evolutionary context, you are listening to an idea that was born from artificial selection or animal breeding. And the argument that Darwin used was that as you can produce, quote, new things by artificial breeding, can't you do it by chance? Here's the downside. If I breed a dog, and I'm working with dogs, and I want to breed a certain characteristic, as I breed, what am I doing? Aren't I taking a categories of possibilities of those dogs and I'm eliminating them to the, just the desirable traits I want? Think of how they breed horses. So isn't breeding actually a subtraction of what was there before? It's not an addition. By breeding, you're breeding out things. You're not creating new things. The potential was always there. And so that's the weakness of the natural selection argument. It can't produce anything that potentially wasn't there in the first place. All breeding does is get traits out of the way. Page 112. A third area that is always involved in practically every evolutionary discussion. Mutations. Here at last, the evolutionists feel is the source of new things. It was through mutations, changes. And they will tell you why. Look at what we know how uh, microscopic organisms, bacteria, viruses become, um, what do you call it, um, immune to antibiotics. And so they say, see? See? Look at that. They shift. Yes, but they're still... They still 
are the little organisms. They haven't changed into something else. They've had certain characteristics. One of the key examples of this uh, is, is the um, idea that you can have a succession of small mutations to produce an evolutionary effect. If you'll follow with me on page 112. Evolutionists have tried to use the process of random mutations to create new things. The trouble is threefold, so watch the three problems. First, most mutations are bad. They resemble mistakes in a computer program. Small disruptions fatally end the program. You ever try programming a computer? Not just using an applications package, but I mean sitting down in Fortran or C or some other language, and you try writing a computer program that works, and you tell me that I can sit there and I can toss around the letters and that thing still computes. Excuse me. It takes a very little random change in a computer program to screw the whole thing up. And that's the analogy when we have a computer program called DNA. You screw with that, and you're going to mess it up, and mess it up real bad. So, most mutations are bad. Second, if such mutations are too small in their effect, they don't help. What good is 10% of an eye? You see the problem? In order to get an advantage, for example, think of the, the fish coming out amphibians. The, the problem there is that you've got to have a leg. You can't just have a half a leg or have an eye. You've got to have a fully functioning component to gain the advantage. But to get the fully functioning component to gain the advantage, you've got to have a whole array of mutations, not just one. Third, if such mutations are required to be too large, that is, too many sequenced, they can't be produced by random chance. See the problem? You can get a couple of them going, but if you need 42 to produce an eyeball for the first time in history, how do I get 42 good ones in a sequence rapidly enough so I can get an eyeball that tells me something and gives me a sight advantage over my blind creatures, my blind competitors? So, there's a number of problems here, and these have not been overcome. Finally, the fourth point. Systematic gaps in the fossil record. Natural history writing must rely on either human observations of the past. Now, it goes back to that diagram I started with tonight when we started this whole thing. God's observations of the past or mute records in nature. The pagan mind quickly eliminates God as a data source, so it builds exclusionary rules against the biblical narrative and its remnants in tribal memories. Then, because paganism infers descent from classification, the evolutionary worldview cannot conceive mankind existing back to when lower life forms were evolving. Thus, human observations are thought to be irrelevant to the question. I just put all that in there because there are human observations of dinosaurs after Noah. And these are all kissed off by everybody that reads, and oh, there's a Chinese dragon nest. Or the idea of the small-scale dinosaurs that appear in medieval literature. Oh, those are just mythological animals. How do you know they're just mythological animals? It's funny why the Apache Indians, or one American Indian tribe in the southwest, carved on the side of one of the canyons out there, I think it's in Arizona, an animal inventory. And every one of the animals on the inventory is known real, except there's some very dinosaur-looking animals on there. 
what are the Indians just have put random mythological animals along with all the other ones? Or are they recording something they saw? And we're the arrogant people. We think this, the jerks didn't, were thinking about some mythological dragon or something. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're right and we're wrong. And you see, we can't check it because all we've got is their observation and their record. So, one of the things is that human observations are thought to be irrelevant to the question. So, that's one of these exclusionary rules operating. What is left is the fossil evidence buried in the earth. Surely, if the evolutionary idea of the continuity of being is correct, there ought to be clear evidence of simpler forms of life transitioning into more complex forms. But what is shown by the fossil evidence, the fossil record shows very little change. Entire groups suddenly appear with no transitional forms from simpler groups. The variations that do appear occur within major groups. Occasionally, you'll have somebody bring up Archaeopteryx or some little form like, oh, yeah, we have transitional forms. Our, the problem with those is that they're skeletal forms that we don't have to flash. So we have no way of checking them. Furthermore, a bird has been found in South America with a claw on its wing, like Archaeopteryx has. And it's very much a bird. It's been flying for a number of years. and doesn't know that it's a reptile. And it just goes on its merry way. Nobody ever told it to be a reptile. It uses its wings like every other bird does. So, the point is, we don't know enough from skeletal material to draw those conclusions, and what exists are very small and very, very infrequent. That is one of the most powerful evidences that evolution can't be a fact. If it were a fact, where is the historical record in the fossil data? Okay, on page 113, how do we interpret this? From the biblical viewpoint, the fossil record is obviously a post-fall product. Death came through Adam's fall. Fossils, therefore, derive from events happening after creation. The prime candidate for a cause of fossil-bearing rock is the flood. Other events may have also contributed, and I'll discuss that in, in D. Conclusion. To write a natural history is extremely difficult. But for the pagan, who at the very starting point excludes all data available from God's word, the task is hopeless. Biological history necessarily deals with instantaneous creation by divine fiat, effects of the fall, effects of the flood, mechanisms of adaption and design into plants and animals. The full story has never been told within a biblical worldview. And as I say, probably won't be because it takes a lot of money to do the research to do that. Alright, summing up then, what have we done tonight? We have simply looked evolution in its face and I hope we have provided you with a concept of how to deal with these things. Go back to basic ideas. Don't get distracted by details. Don't lose the forest for the trees. See what the major issues are and see how they're related to the structures we've learned in creation, fall, flood, and covenant. Don't be snowed because somebody has a PhD and tells you something. It's not, I'm not knocking these guys. Many of them are sincere. We're not impugning people's morals and ethics here. We're simply saying that when you start down a road of a certain way of viewing things, you go further down the road. The issue isn't what's along the road. The issue is what road you took to start with. 
And what we're saying is you've got to come back to the fork in the road. If you made a wrong turn, you go back to where you made the wrong turn. And where you make the wrong turn is in the area of presuppositions, the starting points, the worldviews. This is not a question over fossils. One time I was at Dallas Seminary, and I had this guy that was at seminary and didn't believe Genesis, I guess. And uh, we were talking about strict creation, and he, he lipped off to me one day and said, Oh, what do you think? The fossils are fake? In other words, like, we creationists have this naivete that the data doesn't count, we're overlooking it or something. No, we're just reinterpreting it. We don't deny the, we don't deny the fossils exist. We don't even deny radioactive clocks. We'll talk about that next week. We don't deny the fact that there are things that are happening on the outer edges of the universe of changes in star forms. We're not denying those. It's how we interpret those whether we honor the scripture in how we interpret God's creation. All right, tonight we're going to conclude there with this, and if you will look at Appendix C uh, that was handed out, we'll deal with that and get into uh, astronomical issues. And these are the issues that I think probably are far more serious than the biological issues, the issue of starlight and the age of the universe. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a truthful God, that you have revealed not fables, not myths, not shadows of revelation, but you have told us very frankly and very clearly in a plain narrative how you created the universe. And we ask, Father, that you would give us insights to apply these truths as we go about our walk in the world and learn to see creation through your eyes and listen to your voice. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have some questions, which you may in this... uh, We'll have a break here for a few minutes, and if you'd like to ask some questions, I'll be available for a few minutes afterwards. Yes? I had an Thankfully, in our own time, by our time I mean the last 30 or 40 years, um, mathematics has actually come to our aid. 
mathematics has destroyed the idea of the biology. In fact, it's so destructive that it was in 19, as far back as 1967, there was a famous symposium done in the city of Philadelphia. And at that symposium was called Mathematical Challenges to Neo-Darwinism. And some mathematicians around the country, now these guys aren't creationists, so don't get me wrong. They, they believe in the fact of evolution, they just don't know how it happened. But at least they're saying, it sure didn't happen that way. And so these guys came together and, and they showed how if they built models, computer models, of what Neo-Darwinism was saying, they failed. It all it was junk. And so they went on and on and on, and he, I got the transcript of the discussion. And in the, in the discussion that happened afterward, the biologists actually got so mad that they got up and pounded the table and said, I don't care about your computers or your math, and then went on to describe biology. And, I mean, what do you do with an argument like that? Sorry, but that's the model. The model is saying that you're going to fail. Um, don't blame me. Darwin never had a clue as to what he was talking about in the, in the dynamics of the, of the uh, involvement of all the little things that have to work together. There was a mathematician in the 20th century, his name was von Neumann. And von Neumann is, is considered to be one, uh, in mathematical and scientific circles, to be an absolute genius. This guy worked on a lot of computer math, very theoretical stuff, and even created his own theoretical math. Of his, he just invented it for himself. Anyway, von Neumann specified what it would take to have a machine reproduce itself. And it's called a von Neumann machine. And what he argued was that if you have a simple machine, you know, even a car would be classified in a von Neumann scale as a simple machine. You, a machine has teleonomy, that is, it has purpose. You put stuff in, get stuff out. The problem with a simple machine is that it can go wrong and fail. So von Neumann asked himself one day, well, wait a minute. Couldn't we make a machine that would diagnose its failures? So he began to construct theories of machine design that would incorporate not just the teleonomy, but the fact that the machine would have to know when it failed and diagnose its failure. Well, he struggled with that and got this big, big mathematical mess going. I mean, very complicated stuff for self-diagnostics. Then he said... After the machine diagnoses itself, what would I take to have the machine program its own solution so it could fix itself? Then, and then this involves, you know, every time he does this, there's an order of magnitude of complexity that's introduced. And then he said his final statement was, now I want the machine to conduct its purpose, to diagnose its failures, to repair itself, and then, finally, to reproduce itself. And when he got to that point, he basically uh, had a question in his theorems whether or not a non-infinite set of instructions were sufficient. And so the idea is that what biologists have tried to do is create a biological idea, this idea that, you know, chance can just construct these cells and, and, and complicated biological structures by themselves, what they're trying to say is that a von Neumann machine can arise by itself. And what it amounts to is a von Neumann machine is an extremely complicated program of computer instructions that are, is infinitely more complicated than anything we've got going today. So, 
that's how mathematics has really helped us. And we are in a strong position. I was just saying this before the class. We Christians who don't know this, we really don't appreciate that we are in a very strong position now. We're not like we were even 30 or 40 years ago because of the insights, particularly of computer science, where it's very clear that what we're doing in computer programming is very similar to what God evidently has done you know, except he's out, outfoxed us in his, in his way because he does it with biochemical structures and we do it with electric, electricity. But he's got it down so that the content of, I think, 100,000 volumes is coded in the DNA molecule. And that gives us, the, so basically, like I said, a sperm and an ovum together. And by the way, that's another thing that's interesting in anybody in here that has computers. Think of this. A sperm and an ovum have two parts of the computer program. And when they come together, it's like you write a program and I write a program unknown to each other. And when we put our both parts together, they work. See what an amazing thing it is. That... The sperm and the ovum are, con are both contributing 50% of the program. So the interesting thing is, just look at what complexity that deals with. How do you mesh two programs together? Remember, you don't have, this is not like you have on your computer where you have, say, Windows as an operating system, and you have two application programs, and you say, oh, I got, I got a word processor here, and I got a spreadsheet over here, and I run them both. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that you have no operating system and you have introduced into the computer two programs. And when they get in the computer, they match, mesh, and interact with one another and supplement and completely operate. Now, come on. So that's the kind of stuff that has really made a lot of the Darwinian thing obsolete. And what is it caused, what it's causing in intellectual circles is there's a, a, there's a polite and courteous, yeah, we believe it, but it, it, it's a flagging spirit. That, uh, you know, this is getting a little hard to believe. But when, when challenged and pushed, they will still stubbornly adhere to what I said tonight. I don't know how it happened. We don't really have a good theory, but I believe it in fact. And then when you push the envelope a little bit further in this, what do you mean by fact? It boils down to the fact of an argument from similarity. So that's where we are today. And it's a little different than where we were, say, 50 or 60 years ago. The debate has shifted a little bit in our day. But what's so neat is that when you look at these structures and you think God spoke them into existence, that garden scene in Genesis 2-7, think about that. God speaks Adam into existence. He makes out of the earth. He, he formulates. He had, to, he had to design all that helix. He had to work the ACT sequences in the, in the genetic code. Think of what that must have been. How did he do that? It's his language that he's carried on. Making us and inventing a computer program that would create a three-dimensional creature that is a finite image of himself. Yes, that is a von Neumann machine. Our bodies diagnose their errors, our bodies heal, and our bodies reproduce. And we don't have anything come close to that. And all of this from sheer chance. That's the only other alternative.
See, it gets ridiculous when you start pushing it. So we are in a quite strong position, and I think that we Christians ought to be encouraged that um, we're going in with a lot more potent tools than we had just a short time ago. And it is encouraging that God, in an age of unbelief, when unbelief seems to be getting stronger, also is providing the church with a lot of neat tools. So the battle is joined. Anybody have any experience, either with your children or yourselves, in the area of evolution of what, if you think of as you learned, I'm sure all of you were exposed to this in your schooling, um, can you remember if, if you, before you became Christians, what was it that impressed you most about evolutionary thinking? This is an interesting question to ask. Think about why... I can remember it had great appeal to me. But think of, of, of its power to persuade. Where was that power? Why is it such an overarching thing that seems so easy to apply to every area of life? Can you think about that? I wonder if any of you have had that experience. Especially if you became a Christian early in life and got into the Bible quickly, you probably don't have the experience. But if you became Christians later in your life uh, and you went through that period of time of just thinking in terms of the world, um, can you remember why it fascinated? One thing that struck me was when you would go to the zoo and you would see the like the and their eyes. I mean, there there was just such a similarity. And I remember saying to my sister-in-law, who was a Christian a long time, and I wasn't one yet. You know, how can you deny it? There's such similarity. And she said the same pattern. You know, it's got to be a combination. You know, same pattern. Everybody hear what Marsh is saying here? See, it gets back to that. It is a powerful thing. Now let's ask one further question. Why, if you look at an orangutan in the zoo, and you look at a human being, and you see the similarities there, what is it that you're looking at that's causing you to conclude that? In other words, you're desiring an explanation for that that you're looking at. Now think about what's happening in your heart. Your heart and mind are craving an explanation of what you're observing. And you're automatically generating an idea, a worldview. Because you've got to. You're made in the image of God. You're made to subdue. And so you, you've got to come up with something. And you are impressed with similarities. It is impressive. Absolutely. But what, is, what it is that impresses us is his handiwork. So what ironically turns out is that the very thing that impresses you, the similarity, is the handiwork of our God. It is, it's, his mark is on all of it. We see his mark, but you see in the rebellious heart, when it's not regenerated and it's fallen, it can't help but idolize that. And what you conclude, like with Marcia, and, and I did the same thing, uh, what you conclude with, the, the source of all this design must be in, in creation. It must be in nature, we would call it. Nature, capital N. And what have we done? There is the idolization process working. See? The fallen flesh, the mind that is at enmity with God, it cannot be subject to God, it cannot be subject to the It automatically, just like water flows downhill, it's not that we suddenly decide, I'm going to rebel against God. It's not that conscious. 
It's automatic. It's slimy. It's greasy. It just happens. And there we are, interpreting His handiwork exactly in the opposite way. And that shows you the depths of depravity. Yes. Demi? I wasn't Christian because he was because of the analogy uh, with salvation. Very good analogy, Debbie. Because it's true. The gospel is simple enough that any person can be saved. You do not have to... If it wasn't, if it was complicated, then there'd be a preferential statistics of salvation. But there aren't. And yet, if you want to study the details of salvation, start thinking about what did Jesus do in three hours on the cross? Well, where's that darkness from? Or think about, well, wait a minute, what about predestination? What about the extent of the atonement? This is complicated stuff. So the gospel is simple, but that's not to deny that beneath it all is this powerfully complex thing. And that's just exactly what happens in the biological realm. Now let's take that one step further. Debbie's mentioned that what the problem here is, is that we're overwhelmed with the complexity. And it's like, gee, this is, you know, we've got to get into that. And we do, because it's part of the fact that God made us to subdue the earth. And we want to do that. It's fascinating. God, as Proverbs says, he's hidden the matter and it's up to the king to dig it out. And it's like God saying, oh, come on, you want to see something. But let's kind of conclude here by saying that the reason the complexity is there is that who created it? An infinite mind. And this is why you often may wonder, I think, in the eternal state, why is it that you don't get bored? Because God is so infinitely deep in everything that he touches that the creature, since we're finite, we have an infinite future ahead to continually be amazed at him and we get amazed at him by his handiwork, by his works. Looking at what he does and what he has done causes us to worship him in a more profound way. So the complexity arises because of the complexity of the creator. And you could even say this, that every fact of the universe is so infinitely complicated that it never can be known comprehensively. And that's just to say, that in the final analysis, we will unravel DNA, we will unravel molecular structures, subparticles, and all the rest of the stuff from now to eternity. And we'll continue to do it, and continue to do it, and continue to do it, because he is the infinite one. And what that gives you is a sense of his creature. The problem we have, and Marsh and Debbie put it very well tonight, the problem we have is there's something in our depraved heart that takes that very complexity, the similarities, and somehow we want, to, we want to interpret it this way. And that's the wrong way. It's always reverse. 
And that's, that's the problem. You have to be very careful about your own mind. The heart is desperately wicked and, and deceitful. And that's our fallen nature. And that's why we have to keep coming back to the simple word of God. Apparently simple. It's not simple. The apparently simple matter. In the handout uh, that I gave you, I think it's in the one that I gave you tonight. If it's not, it's in the next part of Appendix C. I think it's in Appendix C that I handed out. I give you a thought experiment. And, and following Debbie's suggestion about the narrative looks so simple, I take you on a thought experiment to the time when God created Adam in Genesis 2-7. And you follow my, my, my argument there. What, I'm, what I've done is I've challenged you to do something. I've challenged you in your own mind to imagine three observers. One observer, uh, here's God creating Adam. And I, I point out in the text that this happened, say, on the sixth day at 10 o'clock. And suppose God worked with, works with the sand and piles and the mud and he's building, he's, he's fabricating man. And let's just suppose, for the sake of argument, it takes five minutes. So, on the sixth day, between 1000 and 1005, we have this act taking place. Observer A sits over here with a video camera, and he's watching this, and he's recording it on videotape. And as most video cams has, he has a clock on the scale. The clock is ticking off the time. After the event happens, along comes Observer B. Observer B comes in. He, uh, he doesn't know that Observer A has photographed this event. And he sees Adam. Now Observer B, because he's a human being who's grown and he has certain concepts of human growth rates, he says, gee, I'm meeting this young man here in the garden. He's maybe 25 years old. Then I introduce you to Observer C. Now Observer C is where we are. Observer C walks into the garden. He's familiar with human growth rates, but he also has access to the video camera. Now the question for Observer C is, which clock does he follow and why? The clock that's ticked off in the video cam? Or does he revert to the idea of an inherent and viable constant called the human growth rate and place his eggs in that basket? And if he doesn't, which way does he jump and why? And that's a thought experiment I'd like you to think about because that shows you that this simple story, like Debbie pointed out, the simple narrative isn't quite so simple when you get to looking at its parts. And involved, lo and behold, you have an answer by this thought experiment. You'll have the answer to geochronometry and the problem of dating. So that's why I want you to look at that for, for next week. Um, we'll see just how simple some of these narratives are. Yes. He doesn't have to because he comes with the same uh, the same set of assumptions B does. The advantage that observer C has is that he hey, can interrogate observer A. Observer C has the both best of both worlds. Observer A only has the video cam and he sees this. Observer B does not have the video cam, and he walks in on creation at 10.06. Observer C walks into creation at 10.06 also, but Observer C has Observer A's video camera with a clock on it, and he also has the philosophic outlook of B knowing about human growth rates. 
Well, but we want to think about this. This is something to mull over and not answer too fast because if you, I want you to mull it over because the answer you give